Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So this particular book, the subject of today's interview, has a bit more of a story to it, to the actual book, than some of my other interviews do. So when I was still doing my bachelor's degree in Near Eastern Studies, I took this graduate seminar on religious authority and modern Islam with Muhammad Qasim Zaman at Princeton. And I was made to read this article titled Appropriating the Past, 20th Century Reconstruction of Pre-Modern Islamic Thought. And I've gone back to that article many, many, many times. The premise of the article was to look at different connections across the 18th and 20th century in Islamic thought, and in particular, how to characterize the Salafi movement, which, as many of you will know, has ramifications for the present state of Islam, where Salafism as a movement has entered the American and Western European mainstream in the vernacular, is associated with different movements in the Middle East, um, and often different types of extremism. So back to that article. I've struggled with that article because I've agreed and I've disagreed with it in different terms, and I've agreed and disagreed with it and switched sides many times when I've read it. But then again, I always come back to it. It's it's what I put on syllabi when I write them. It's what I look to when I need to think theoretically about how to approach my subjects. So the professor who taught that class, Klaasen Zamani, became a great mentor. And he mentioned when he first taught the class in 2013 that the author of that article had a book coming out that would build on the article. And every year or so, he mentioned that it was coming out soon. Finally, the last time I met with him in December 2017, he told me that a release date for that book had been announced. So today I get to speak to the author of that article and I get to speak to him about the book that I've been anticipating for years. My name is Nadra Mansour and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. My guest today is Ahmad Dallal, who is the Dean of Georgetown University in Qatar. He was Professor of History and was the Provost at the American University in Beirut, or AUB, from 2009 to 2017. He previously served as an associate professor of Arabic and Islamic studies and also chair of the Arabic and Islamic studies department at Georgetown University. And then he taught Stanford before that, Yale before that, and Smith before that. He earned his PhD in Islamic studies from Columbia University and his bachelor's in mechanical engineering from AUB. The last scholarship focuses on the history of science, Islamic revivalist thought, and Islamic law, and he's written written widely in academic journals and for the non-academic press. His books include An Islamic Response to Greek Astronomy, 1995, Islam Science and the Challenge of History, 2012, The Political Theology of ISIS, Prophets, Messiahs, and the Extinction of the Gray Zone, 2017, and the subject of today's interview, Islam without Europe, Traditions of Reform in the 18th century, in in 18th century, Islamic thought, out 2018 from UNC Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nadira, for this kind introduction. It's very nice of you. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm so excited. This is an excuse to read the book. And as I mentioned earlier to you before the interview, this is an excuse to ask you everything I've ever wanted to ask you. Please do. Um, so we always start off with a bit of a biographical question. What is your intellectual biography? How did you come into academia? Uh, as you noted, I started out as a mechanical engineer. Uh, uh, 
in my generation, the the expectation for for uh, uh, for kids who are good at school was to go to one of the professions: medicine, engineering, maybe business or law, uh, and not to the humanities or the social sciences. Uh, so I did what I was expected to do. I did mechanical engineering, and I practiced engineering for four years. I enjoyed it while I did it. I used to work in an airline and used to fix airplanes. Uh, but I've, uh, you know, while, while studying engineering, I actually took so many electives in, in history because this is a subject that I've always liked. Uh, when I came to a point in my career as an engineer where I had to think of, you know, the next steps and advance and so on, I uh, made a decision to, uh, instead of doing something like business and engineering or pursuing a PhD in engineering or what have you, I made a decision to go back to the subject that I've always liked to, to pursue, which is uh, history and to work on Islamic history. So I moved to academia. This is how I came to academia. Uh, uh, you know, as, as you noted, this particular topic, the topic of 18th century Islamic thought, initially I wrote my dissertation on astronomy and I published, uh, the, you know, I, based on, on that dissertation, I published my first book. Um, in a way, what I did initially in academia, I, given, given the fact that I'm not afraid of the sciences or of numbers or, or mathematics, uh, I'm not intimidated by that, I thought I would combine my, uh, my knowledge of, of, of the sciences and my background in sciences with, uh, with uh, uh, the study of history, which is why I, I chose to work on history of science. Uh, but I also worked on, on other topics in Islamic studies, and my interest was in Islamic intellectual thought and disciplines of learning. And eventually I sort of uh, explored the relationship between these different disciplines. It became one of my, my interests. Um, so initially, I worked more in, in history of science, but also I was interested in the relationship and the position of the exact sciences within the larger uh, landscape of Islamic intellectual uh, uh, history and, you know, in its relationship to other disciplines of, of, uh, of learning, traditional ones, that there is. Um, uh, I, you know, the, the, the initial work that I did on the 18th century was motivated to some extent I read some of the literature and, you know, as I'm studying in one of my courses, some of the literature on the 18th century, the revisionist literature, and I was interested in this work. Um, and I actually initially started working on the 18th century with the intention of sort of contributing to a strain, to a trend in, in uh, revisiting the 18th century and 18th century Islamic thought. Um, but as I started Looking into the material, I realized that I don't necessarily agree with everything that I've uh, that I've uh, that I came across as I'm studying this uh, this field. I published my first article in uh, when was it '93, I think, uh, uh, on uh, on Islamic revivalist thought. It's an overview. Of course, the people that I've examined. I mean, I've you know I've examined some of the people that I examined in my book, but there are many more that I've studied later on. Uh, and the article you mentioned on appropriating the past was, you know, it's one aspect of of of, of uh, this work. Um, you know, I moved back and forth. I worked. I published the initial article and a couple of other articles later on. But as I, you know, I kept on reading on on 18th century Islamic thought, and I uh, eventually I decided that this is uh, something that that's worth, uh, you, you know, dedicating dedicating much more time to. Um, 
you're right, the book was supposed to, was supposed to come out uh, a bit earlier than it actually did. Uh, anyway, it's good that I spent sufficient time and I gave myself time to reflect on aspects of this work and to add more material. And there is, of course, much more that, that needs to be added in the future. Uh, but I happened to take on uh, administrative uh, jobs in, in my career and uh, demanding administrative jobs that that actually take a lot of time and prevented me from finishing the, the book a little earlier than it was uh, supposed to come. Fortunately, it's out now, and uh, and now it's in the hands of scholars like you to comment on it or change it or criticize it or do whatever you like with it. Yeah, I just have to say, I'm, I, I mentioned this to you also before the interview, it's, it's a fantastic book. It's so dense, and I think the fact that you had more time to work on it reflects this. And also, it's so well-structured. You lead us through each of the different sort of trends in Islamic thought, and you tie them together, and there's a real – you don't see this with all books. There's a progression. The argument progresses as you go from section to section, but also – and I think this is really unique. I was reading it immediately. I thought, oh, this is the book that I would teach a graduate seminar in – 18th century thought sort of as the backbone. Like I would attach sources to it. And then I would also give this to undergraduates. It's also just such a readable um, interpretation. Like I do think that you have a very strong voice and I get your tone throughout. And I can sort of tell when you're being a little, I don't know, this is a complete assumption. I can sort of tell when you were being a little bit more snarky. Um <laughs> And I, I appreciated there was a real voice to it. So, okay, I mentioned that there are the different trends in the book itself. And whenever I'm speaking about Islamic studies, either to an undergraduate class or if I'm giving some sort of presentation or if I'm explaining it to my mother who doesn't, my mother also, my parents also wanted me to be either a doctor, lawyer, or an uh, engineer. So I completely sympathize with you. Um, they're disappointed that I'm in this field of work to some extent, but we'll see. So I never know... I, with, with explaining Islamic studies or the Islamic science sort of as it progressed from the inception of Islam, I think is very difficult. And I was wondering if you could sort of set the scene for us and explain how Islamic intellectually, intellectual history progressed from its inception. Well, this is a huge question. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. The, the history of a discipline and, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, it's not a discipline, actually. It's a field. Uh, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I, I refer to Islamic studies, and I mean, and I think I'm not the only one, in, in, in many different ways. I mean, you know, you could, uh, I mean, this could be a reference to uh, the types of studies that within traditional Muslim societies, people yes. were engaged in and within traditional Muslim societies, and they have their history, no doubt. Or we could be referring to Islamic studies as a as a field of study within Western academia, in which we are all, you know, we are both trained and and uh, and and also, you know, we could also think of Islamic studies even outside of Western academia within Muslim majority countries, which is also influenced by Western academia, but also but but influenced by so there are many many different ways. I think you know I, I what I would say is uh, when I'm when I'm speaking of Islamic studies. Uh, and depending on the context, I could be referring to any of these. Now, of course, Islamic studies is not a discipline, it's a field. There are multiple dis- disciplines within it. Yes. But it's a field of studies. It's a it's a it's the raw material which is produced within Muslim countries over several centuries, many centuries, 14 centuries, and and uh, or or a little less than 14 centuries, depending on 
you know on, on what we're looking at uh, but but it's 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 various various uh, 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 forms in intellectual disciplines and, and and intellectual materials that have been produced over the years in in many different fields uh, including uh, you know when we're talking about the academic study of Islam in, in Western academia including the the scholarship and and the and the reflection on on uh, on various aspects of the of, of these traditions in, in uh, within a modern context uh, so I mean the first thing is it's a field it's not a discipline which means that there is raw material that could be used in, in, in multiple ways the other thing the other point that I would note here which I think is important is that there is so much uh, in uh, you, you know quite naturally, uh, uh, you know, when canons are, are formed and when approaches are, are articulated to the study of Islamic intellectual history or Islamic uh, 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 intellectual production, uh, uh, there are, you know, there are accidents of history and there are also biases of the, of the authors that, that approach this study and so on. Uh, but the actual raw material, the, the intellectual production, over 14 centuries of Islamic history is much larger than what scholars have so far studied. There are many aspects of, uh, you know, and I and I talk a little bit about that in the book. There are many aspects. There are many um, many types of materials that we don't know how to analyze or how to study or how to incorporate in in our modern approach to the study of Islam. Things that have been that have engaged scholars uh, within the Muslim world. Uh, for many centuries, and uh, you know, some of the best minds of of, of uh, within the Muslim world, and we only usually when we study these things, we only focus on certain aspects of of uh, of this study. And uh, but but there are many more aspects of of, of of this literature and this material which we don't even know how to address. This is what uh, Reinhard Schultz, whom I disagree with in the book on, on certain aspects, uh, but you know, this is what he what he meant when he said there is there are materials which are unreadable uh, because we haven't developed the methodologies to read them. Take, uh, if I may, uh, you know, um, please stop me if you want to, but if I may elaborate, take for example hadith, uh, and I also touch on that a little bit. Uh, and you know, as we all know, there's so much that has been written in the field of hadith uh, within the Muslim world. It's a field that has engaged Muslims and Muslim intellectuals as well as Muslim masses in, in you know in common study and so on uh, for a very very long time. There is so much that's written in this discipline from very very many different perspectives and angles and so on. Uh, in terms of, of the tools, the analytical, academic tools that we have for the study of hadith, there is a disproportionate focus on the early period of the development of the discipline and the whole question of authenticity. Of course, it's a valid intellectual question, but it's only it only covers a small a sliver of uh, what this body of literature stands for and the way it engaged, the, the way, um, it, you know, intellectual energies were, were dedicated to it, and also the way that, you know, large segments of Muslim societies were involved in it. So, you know, although the, the focus on, on the question of authenticity and is it authentic or whatever is, is again, is irrelevant, is a significant uh, intellectual question, it only covers a small portion of, of uh, what is relevant about this, this, this tradition and its meaning, you know, the meaning that it's endowed with 
over over uh, multiple centuries, and we really don't have the tools. Um, you know, I make an effort in the book to address this, uh, amongst other things. So, you know, to try to think of other ways of of studying hadith and understanding it, and and reading meaning into the energies that went into the development of of this discipline, not just in the early period, but much later. Um, so, again, Islamic studies is a field. There is a huge amount of literature which we haven't really uh, analyzed properly, uh, and there is so much more to, to to do with it. And you know, there is there is an opportunity of applying multiple disciplines to it. I don't know if I answered your question, but please feel free oh. to ask me more if, uh, if you want. You did a brilliant job. I like, like I said, it's it's such a difficult thing to explain, and also to distinguish between the three different forms of Islamic studies as you mentioned, especially when you're trying to explain it to someone who. Like all of these these different branches um, are interlinked, but even within the history of of writing about Islam, as Muslims have done it for centuries, as you said, everyone. I mean, the, these scholars were trained in so many different branches of the Islamic sciences, Islamic studies. That a Hadith study scholar could also be a very well known Sufi who wrote texts on the side or came to a different point in his career. And I'm glad you mentioned Hadith studies because I feel like Hadith studies right now in the Western Academy is having a moment. Um, we've had a couple of recent publications that have addressed this. And I, I noted it in the book wherever you mentioned it, because I think you're, you're completely right. We focus not just Hadith studies, but for example, um, historiography, the writing of history in the early period is overtly focused on the writing of biographical dictionaries. And we're only now coming to realize just how important it is to start to look at so much of the material, you know, from like the eighth to the, the 8th century uh, CE to the 19th or the 18th, where there's huge gaps missing. And I think, unfortunately, part of the problem is that we're also not, in the Western Academy, I feel like we're not told to read all the brilliant scholarship that's coming out on these materials coming in Arabic or Turkish or Persian. Um, And it's unfortunate because there's so much great material on those Islamic sciences. Um, so on a similar note, I want to ask you a question because I, I, let me know if this is too much, but you use this word quite a lot in the book and I, I admire you for it. I don't think I disagree with your usage of it at all. I think it's something that I aspire to. You use the word Orientalist very, very blatantly. And you also, um, and you reference this earlier in your answer, you sort of take, you know, a stab at, Islamic studies in the Western Academy for its obsession with movements versus ideas. So is that connected to how you use the word Orientalist? How, how do you feel about the usage of that word and, and why do you deploy it? Uh, yes, the issue of movements versus, uh, versus uh, ideas, uh, you know, is, is a... It's something that is, uh, you know, is a subset, if you will, of the larger question of Orientalism. I mean, let let me address the first one, the issue of movements and, and ideas. And I'm, you know, in in that my my focus, the 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 way I address this uh, this point in my book, is in reference to uh, the later centuries, the early modern and the pre-modern and the modern period. Um, Given the assumption of uh, absolute stagnation and there is nothing of interest in the in the modern period after whatever thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century, it depends on who's who's writing. But certainly, you know, given the notion that the eighteenth century uh, onwards is a century of stagnation, uh, there hasn't been, you know, th- there is there is always this implicit assumption, and sometimes not so implicit. Sometimes it's even expressed that 
you know, what we study in, in the modern period of movements that are socially interesting, that have impact at a social level, but there is really nothing of value when, when it comes to intellectual history. Uh, you know, and a, a good portion, as, as, as you know, of, of my book is, is dedicated to addressing this, what I think is a, is a major flaw. And I, I argue that the 18th century is a very vibrant intellectual century. And, you know, this is, you know, a kernel of, of, of my argument. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is, this is my primary focus in the book. My primary focus on this particular issue is that there is an assumption in modern scholarship that, uh, that what's interesting is... Is the movements and their social impact, and not so much the ideas, because the ideas are, you know, are old ideas, and they they don't compare uh, favorably when we compare them to to, to the pre modern period. If there's anything of value, it's in the classical age, and after that, it's all it's all decline. It's a, it's a steady decline. This is now this is a standard quote unquote orientalist. Uh, uh, argument. Of course, not every Orientalist uh, argues this, and uh, if they do, they don't argue this in the exact same way. And there is a range of Orientalist views and so on. Uh, but it's a staple. It's a it's a it's a common argument. And I've uh, you know the 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 giants of the Orientalist tradition tend to agree over 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 this point. Uh, the you know the the notion of decline in, in, in the post 18th century, and to some extent. And I highlight that even the revisionists who started, who, who attempted to revise the, you know, to, to have a different approach to the 18th century, uh, also focus on social movements and connections and circularity, the circulation of individuals and the impact that they have within their society. And they don't do anything with the literature. They don't analyze the literature that's produced in the 18th century. And as a result, they fail to produce evidence of what they claim is a is a, is an intellectual is the intellectual vibrance of the 18th century. So this is uh, with regard. And please ask me more if you want. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll be happy to dwell more. Uh, now, when it comes to Orientalists, yeah, I use the, uh, the term. You know, I think it's a fact. You know, I'm, um, it's not a, it's not a judgment. It's a, you know I take that for granted. There is you know and and again the meaning of the word Orientalist. And I mean, first of all, there are people who refer to themselves as Orientalists. Uh, and uh, and uh, this isn't to say that I uh, I mean I happen to agree with the with the with the general thesis that was developed by, by Edward Said. I think it's valid. I think it's resulted. It's not that it's complete and nothing is, and it's not that it describes everything, and it's not that there are no flaws and there are no gaps in the arguments that Edward Said. But I think he underscores he and other scholars before him and 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 since he underscores aspects of the study of you know the the the, the power context of the study of Islam in the modern you know in the in the later centuries within the Western tradition uh, and and. Uh, and, and I think that's a very valid argument. Uh, again, this doesn't, um, I'm not suggesting that there is no value in, in Orientalism. There is so much. We're all trained within that tradition. Orientalists are the ones who produce grand narratives, and I see value in producing grand narratives. I think, you know, in, in, in the post, you know, in the, in, in the era of, uh, of uh, the critique of Orientalism uh, post Edward Said, many able scholars have shied away from addressing these grand narratives and trying to produce alternatives to these grand narratives. I think this is a weakness of the, of the field. Uh, but, uh, but then again, of course, I use the term, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not apologetic about the use, the, the use of the term. I think it's, uh, it's, 
you know, it's a self-appellation. It's the way that scholars refer to themselves. And even if they do, it's, uh, it's a tradition of scholarship that informs all of us. And we are, we are uh, quite often working within its constraints and trying to address it, trying to correct it, trying to respond to it, and trying to undermine, in, in, in many cases, some of its inherent biases. In my book, I try to do that. I, 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 I identify, excuse me, I identify what I think are inherent flaws uh, when it comes to the study of the, of the 18th century, uh, which are uh, a product of this tradition, this Orientalist tradition, and I, and I try to, to uh, provide my, what I think are my characters and my, my different perspective and critique of this tradition. No, I admire that a lot because I think that, well, A, that's a very even-handed answer, which I respect. Um, But B, I also agree that I think your approach is very much, as I mentioned earlier, it is this greater story. And I think of narratives in terms of good storytelling, and I think that's a weakness of our field right now is we're not told to tell stories. Um, and with intellectual history, I think even less so. And I think this might be why there was that trend. I mean, you implied this, there's this transition to movements versus ideas and without backing the, uh, without providing intellectual context for why these movements emerged. And I think by being able to tell a story through ideas, you can provide the very rigorous evidence. And that's another gift that Orientalism as a field of study that was established you know, in the 18th and 19th century gave us is this very rigorous approach to evidence, which is something some people would argue our field is losing. Um, so I want to go back to the book itself uh, before we get into the meat of it, uh, which is, and I really, I, I wasn't expecting this when I opened it up. You have on the uh, the, the page opposite the contents, I think normally where you have the dedication, you have a verse from the Quran. Um, it's from Surah al-Isra, which is one of my personal favorites. And the line goes um, in a translation, read your own book, suffice it today that you be accountable to yourself. Or in Arabic, And I, I wanted to ask, why did you put that there? Uh Okay, uh, you know, initially when I uh, when I uh, put that, I, I didn't put it with the translation. It, it was an oversight on my on my part. So the editor wrote back and said, "Don't you want to translate this verse?" <laughs> I said, "Of course, I'm sorry." And uh, as as you know, translations are interpretations. This is not necessarily the standard, you know, a translation that would correspond to the standard tafsir, the standard interpretation of of uh, the surah. You know, uh, again, within the Islamic tradition, the Quran is a is uh, is part of uh, the daily life. I mean, of Muslims and non-Muslims alike. I mean, you know, and I would I would assume many also who study Islam would you know would appreciate that as well. Uh, uh, and the way we relate to the Quran, we relate to it in multiple ways. We study it, we analyze it in in many different ways, and 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 so on. This is not. This is not, uh, you know, this is not about the study. Uh, it's not about a very consistent, systematic argument that I'm trying trying to make. It's simply the way I, you know, it's one way I relate to the Quran. Uh, you know, one way we relate to the Quran. It becomes part of our daily life. It becomes it informs our language uh, and language usage. There are. Uh, you know there are ethical principles, if you will, that we we derive from the Quran, even if that doesn't correspond to the systematic way that 
that uh, that these principles. So we relate to the Quran in multiple ways, and of course, there is the beauty of the language. I personally, this is one of you know one of many verses that I think are beautiful that I uh, that I appreciate, and I you know and I specifically in this particular one, in this particular verse of Kitabata. Uh, you know, to me, what this means is a is a notion that we're uh, and and you know that we we all have individual, irrespective of the context, we have individual intellectual as well as moral responsibilities, and if we're not accountable to anyone else, if no one else is observing, we're at least accountable to ourselves for, for that. This is, again, this is, I'm not saying this is how exactly the, the verse would have been traditionally interpreted. This is how I read it. This is what it, what it triggers in me when I, when I read it. And so, I, you know, it's both the, beautiful, the beauty of the language. It's also the fact that the, language, that the Quran permeates people's lives in so many different ways and so many different rich ways open-ended if I, if I may also say and also the, the, the way I read meaning into this particular verse um, so you know I mean I could say more but I, I hope this is sufficient No, I have a similar mind about it there's certain ayat in the Quran certain verses in the Quran that I find really that resonate with me and I take them out of context and I'll quote them out of context and then I'll get called out for quoting them out of context <laughs> but I I completely agree with you I think it's full of and that, that's the nature of the Quran and the narration of how it was revealed right you know if it was revealed piecemeal if it wasn't revealed as all these different cases I think we're encouraged by some perverse logic to take the verses and, and apply them to our own voices. And you're completely right. It resonates. And then it's also this, this extraordinary, beautiful, just um, tonally document. So I, I, when I opened the book, I just saw that. And I was like, that's, that's a great verse. That's a, a beautiful place to put it. And I also felt like it reflected on some of the scholars that you were speaking about. So to the book itself, the book is called Islam without Europe, traditions of reform in 18th century Islamic thought. And I, I, I struggle with, and I mentioned this to you before, I struggle with the idea of reform, with continuity and eruption. I'm obsessed with how we think about that because I think oftentimes history as a discipline, we were trained to think of it, you know, the first historians were writing about politics. And I think oftentimes that we're trained to think of change that way too. Um, but I feel like a lot of scholars in the Islamic tradition are reform-minded. That is, they, they keep the tradition in mind but, and this is people writing within Muslims writing scholarship for Muslims, be it exegesis, be it law, there, there's always this idea that you're in conversation with the texts of the past, but that you can, this is very broadly spoken, I'm sure there are many scholars who don't have this exact same approach. Um, they're having these conversations with the past and they can agree or disagree with it and they can add to that body of literature by writing. Um so how do you define and approach reform, just in the most abstract sense? Um, I agree with you. Many, I mean, uh, you know, many scholars, uh, you know, relate to tradition in a reformative way, you know, have a reformative approach, but not necessarily everyone. I think essential to reform is, you know, is a sense of crisis. I mean, if if you don't think there is a crisis, if there is, if you don't think there is need for change, why would you change and why would you do anything differently? Uh, there are many great scholars who are, who compile things. 
uh, not necessarily to change them, but simply to, you know, as an illustration of their erudition, they studied the disciplines and they compiled massive, very, you know, remarkable works, but not, you know, without this, uh, I think a, a key ingredient in, in identifying reform is a sense, you know, a sense of crisis in the mind of the author, in the mind of the, of the writer, you know, a sense that there is something, that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. And then reflecting that into the tradition and trying to address this problem from the tradition itself. Uh, this, this is certainly true of the people that I discuss in my book, including, by the way, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahab, and you know who also, I mean, you know, although you know you you, you know my my take on on, on that particular uh, 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 author, but in general, you know, all the people that I work on in my in my book. Uh, have this heightened sense that there is a crisis and there is a need to reformulate things intellectually as well as socially to address this crisis. Uh, there are intersections in the way different, you know, these different people perceived of what constitutes a crisis, uh, but there are also differences which are regional, which I, you know, as I, as I argue in the book. So key to, cri- to, to reform, I think, is a sense of crisis and a sense that, that there's something that needs to be, to be done. This is why, by the way, uh, you might have noticed, uh, you know, I don't have, I haven't been able, and I, this might be my own shortcoming because I haven't read enough or whatever, but, uh, you know, there are there are regions and areas where I've been able to identify quote-unquote reformers, uh, whereas, uh, uh, whereas in other regions I haven't. I think, uh, you know, especially for people who, who have a feel, who have a sense that, uh, you know, they're, they're doing well, they don't need to, to do much. Uh, uh, they, they don't have a, a heightened sense of crisis. I think the, the possibilities of uh, of coming up with uh, with new ideas, with radically new ideas, you know, become. Uh, I mean, you know, there are less possibilities of, of that happening, and uh, unless one thinks that there is a motivation, and, and, and in the sense that there is a social crisis, there is an intellectual crisis, or a combination thereof, and that needs to be addressed through uh, a revisiting of, of, of the tradition. And again, the people that I work on, on in this book, invariably all of them, all the people that I work on the book, actually have a very heightened sense of a crisis and the need to address it through re- revisiting the tradition. Uh, I don't know if I answered your question, but you know, just an additional point. Um, not everyone who works on tradition necessarily is a reformer, either uh, the way they conceive of what they're doing or in, 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 what, in, in terms of what they produce. Uh, but certainly engaging with, with the tradition. Now, this in terms of, of uh, the reformers that I, that I study, you mentioned continuity and rupture. Uh, actually, I think, uh, you know, I would like to think this is how I approach the study of, uh, of Islamic intellectual uh, traditions. We're talking about a very large period. We're talking about uh, some of the most intensive and creative intellectual exercises for a number of centuries that were taking place in in, in, in the world. We're talking about um, you know a long history and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's very hard to sort of uh, you, you know I, it's very hard to and and people tend to try to do that you know try to idealize a period or a century or a, or whatever and uh, or a region or a combination thereof and say this is it and then compare everything to to, to this this particular period 
Um, I would like to think, you know, that a, a, a better approach, and I hope that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to do that. I do that certainly in my teaching. I try to make that point in my teaching, and I hope I'm, I was able to reflect it in my, in, in, in my written work. I think a better approach would be to look at the, the tradition and its transformation, irrespective of whether this is driven, transformation over time, whether it's driven by a sense of crisis and, and the need for reform or otherwise. Look at the transformations of the tra- tradition and then contextualize and try to explain these transformations. So I look at, at, at the tradition as a, as a, as a living uh, uh, continuum. And then at any point in time, try to see whether there are changes, whether there are ruptures or, or transformations um, more often. But in some cases, very, you know, very deliberate uh, ruptures, as was the case, I think, uh, to some extent in the 18th century. Uh, and then try to explain that. I think this is the, you know, the, the, the challenge. And I think this constitutes, it's not the only way of approaching things, but I think this is a, a useful way of approaching the tradition and approaching the field of Islamic studies more broadly. I I espouse that view. I think I struggle a lot with, as you mentioned, this attempt to glorify one period over another. This and this, this is, I think, my general fear with, um, you know, the 18th and the 17th centuries were described as periods of decline by different um, by different scholars who were writing within those time periods within the Muslim world, or also by different scholars writing in the Western Academy. And what frightens me about that is that the, the reaction to that, which I think there needs to be a reaction to that that negates it, the reaction to that often glorifies different periods or different branches of the Islamic sciences. And that disappoints me because I do think that there is oftentimes more, even the things that we think are rupturing are still part of this greater tr- other continuities. Um, and I think you identified that by labeling them transformations. And when I received your book, I think that was one thing I, I when I saw that it was 18th century Islamic thought, I, I and also the Islam without Europe title, I was a little apprehensive because I thought, oh, is, is he going to stick to this? And I think oftentimes I need to get better at looking beyond the title because I realize the publisher often has a lot to do with that. But I did think that you did a really excellent job of not necessarily being married to the 18th century, that this was about a specific group of thinkers who were, you saw trends and you saw moments where there was rupture and continuity, but you didn't over-exemplify either. It was more about the ideas themselves, as you've mentioned so many different times. And another thing I admire about the book is your sense of geography, um, is you really do approach the Muslim world more holistically. So... I am often plagued by questions in my own work of center and periphery, especially because in the late 19th century, everyone wants to study Egypt and, and well, more specifically, not Egypt, but um, Cairo and Beidouz. And I'm always trying to push back against that and show that there are other intellectual centers that, for example, the first major Arabic newspapers came from Tunis and Istanbul. Um, so how do you think about center and periphery? Sort of what is the role of geography in intellectual history? Sure, I will. I will address this. Uh, uh, but let me let me just say one word about the title, if if I may. Yeah. Uh, I take full responsibility for the title. It's not the it's not the editors. It's my title. With no change from the editor. Um, two things about the title. Uh, I mean, first of all, Islam without Europe is, as you would have guessed. I'm talking about tradition of reform, which is not triggered by the encounter with Europe. There is a different tradition of reform. 
And there are, there are many more studies of that tradition of reform that was encountered, that was triggered by the encounter with, with, uh, with Europe. And not just, I'm not talking here about the physical military encounter, political encounter, but also a realization that there is a, an intellectual challenge and how people responded to it and reacted to it. What I'm talking about is, is a tradition which is not influenced by this encounter, which is why the title Islam without Europe, nothing against Europe. And I'm, you know, and certainly there are periods of time where the exchange and the encounter is extremely important before and after the 18th century. But I'm talking about the brand. The book is about the brand of of, uh, of uh, intellectual activity, which really has nothing to do with the with the realization that there's some, you know, that there is this uh, that, that there are these intellectual trends in Europe and also trends that are reshaping and having playing an important role in reshaping the Muslim world. This is the first part. The second part, I completely agree. You know, I, I, yes, I, I am focusing on a what I first of all called the long 18th century, which is which starts before the 18th century and ends after the 18th century. And really, the marker here, the criteria, is the encounter with Europe. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking about you know, a tradition that extends, uh, but especially in the substantive uh, chapters where I try to reconstruct these traditions, uh, you would uh, notice that I that I trace genealogies that date back to the 14th century and 15th century and so on. So there is no doubt there is a genealogy and, and none of these traditions uh, are, are developed in isolation and only in the 18th century. You are, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you on, on, on that. However, there is something which is a little more intense that's happening. It's a culmination. It's rooted in, in what I argue are multiple region, regional traditions uh, and, and thinking and revisiting. But they sort of mature and culminate in the 18th century and they express themselves in ways which are which appear in some cases to present, you know, appear as ruptures. Again, ruptures without, without arguing. I, I invariably argue that all of these are rooted in the pre-modern. Uh, and they are they depend on the on, on the local traditions very heavily on the local local traditions. But there is something intense. It's an intense moment of rethinking things uh, in, in in the 18th century. So uh, I'm not arguing, and you know we could um, similar arguments could be made. Hopefully, will be made. I'll be very happy if someone makes them for the 16th and the 17th and and, and what have you. I just focused on the 18th century. I completely agree with you. We should not and cannot think of this in, in, in isolation and without looking at the genealogy of the development of these traditions. You know, in Hadith, I talk about the Indian school and I try to trace, at least to suggest ways of, you know, what shapes and what characterizes this school and I talk about the Yemeni school and so on. Now to the question of geography and periphery and center. Two things. You know, I think, uh, again, periphery and center is, is not a is not a you know uh, is not a classification that can be made outside of time. What constitutes periphery in a certain period of time might be center in another period, and so on and so forth. And I think for the 18th century, I don't think these categories of periphery and center apply. Of course, there is a uh, there is a bigger weight to the Egyptian and and uh, you know certainly the the Ottoman central Ottoman. Uh, polities, they're stronger, they're, uh, they're, uh, they're much more influential. And in that sense, you know, an argument can, can be made that these are uh, 
bigger polities, if you will, but there are other polities. There is Iran, there is the Mughal Empire, I mean, the remnants in the pre-modern period of, 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 uh, of uh, Iran and the Mughal Empire and so on. Um, so the notion of periphery and center, I think, is problematic for the pre-modern period. We cannot apply it. Uh, and it may, you know, it may also be problematic for the, for the, you know, for later periods. But that's not what I talk about in my book. The other issue, though, which is uh, which is probably I think you know which is probably more relevant here, is that what we today would refer to as the periphery. Intellectually, in my book, I argue that this periphery was the center of intellectual vitality, and. You might have noticed that I wasn't that I don't have people from the from Anatolia, from the heartland of the Ottoman Empire, or from Egypt in my book. And again, this might be my own shortcoming. Maybe I wasn't able to find these people, these interesting intellectual figures who were able to produce, uh, you know, this, these new articulations, radical, you know, radical reformations of of some key intellectual traditions, and I talk specifically about hadith and and, uh, and usul fiqh and, and, uh, and legal theory and, and, and the book, uh, I wasn't able to identify them. This might be my shortcoming, but it also might be uh, because the centers for intellectual activity were elsewhere. Uh, were in India, were in Yemen, were in sub-Saharan Africa, were in West Africa, and so on. And to some extent, even in Syria, and, and so on. So, it may very well be that what we think of as a political center from today's approach wasn't intellectually as important or, or as relevant and as, as vital. I have theories about why that might have happened, but they're not uh, fully developed. And I'd rather not uh, not speculate too much on this. People will, will tear me apart if I do. So uh, the what, what I can say, though, is I haven't been able to identify, I mean, look, for example, I looked at Sabidi, uh, you know, a, a prolific author, but a compiler. And if you look at his work on Hadith, for example, or whatever, very traditional, very conservative, very quote-unquote reactionary, if I may use this uh, this word anachronistically and uh, um, um, so yes, he was a compiler. I mean, his work, Taj uh, al and his work in lexicography is very interesting, uh, but there isn't much new in it. I mean, what's interesting about it is the organization and that he compiles materials and so on and so forth. That's a sign of erudition. It's, this, it's not a sign of intellectual originality or creativity or, or, uh, uh, or imagination, if you will. Um, but then, you know, again, some people might take issue with this, and I'm, I'm, I'm not really wedded to it. I'm not trying to make a generalization about, about Turkey, about, about Egypt. But what I certainly have, you know, in my work, the, the centers for intellectual activity are what we would refer to today as periphery, as, you know, and I, and I think uh, that's why I think, you know, that's all the more reason why I agree with you that these, these notions of center and periphery are, are quite dynamic and could be misleading if, if we apply them statically to, to, to our studies. Um, and it, it depends on what the type of intellectual production is, which I think, and, and also I think you mentioned being crisis-minded. Uh, individuals who are more crisis-minded to some extent are going to produce more literature and 
that's one of the founding theses behind it. And you referenced it when you talked about the title, Islam Without Europe. And I just want to take a note. The reason I admire the title so much, actually, Islam Without Europe, is you mention it in the introduction and then you just kind of proceed. It's just Islam Without Europe. Europe is not mentioned. And you stick to it. Um, but as I was saying, yeah, the organizing principle of the book is a very specific strain of thought. And one other thing I want to mention is that you do not decontext, and we'll talk about this in a bit. I want to ask you about how to write about context in intellectual history, but you don't decontextualize your thinkers. They're always very alive. You set them up within their intellectual genealogies, who they were teaching, who they were speaking to, but also where they were living. Um, and I admire that very much because I think that's something we go back and forth in intellectual history just broadly across geographies. We never quite know where to stop decontextualizing or decontextualizing. And some people think it's simply about the ideas isolated from their context. Um, so to speak about a very famous idea that uh, you referenced a few minutes ago, Wahhabism. So the thought of Imam um, al-Wahhab um, that today manifests in different quote unquote extremist ideologies. Um, and to some extent is uh, the state ideology of, of different Arab states. Um, so how does Wahhabism fit into the 18th century? And to what extent, and you demonstrate to us to what extent it was unique. So how is it different than how we would assume based on contemporary Wahhabism? So can you draw the line between where Wahhabism begins and what it looks like in the 18th century and how people responded to it and then bring it forward to today? Well, th there are two things. I mean, there is, there is the question of... Uh, the, I mean, there is, you know, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab had a had a, a pact with the Saud family, and that was a pact between a tribal political authority and an ideology. And that pact, although, you know, and it takes different forms, that pact remains relevant even to understanding present-day politics and, and, and developments in, in Saudi Arabia and beyond Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the way. So... And there are aspects, I mean, there is this aspect, this particular aspect of, uh, you know, in, in answer to your question, there is this particular aspect. There are some primary, and of course, the thought of Ibn Abdul Wahab is invoked in so many different ways and continues to be, to inform and to be invoked in, in you know, in, in contemporary uh, uh, ideological movements. Uh, uh, so there are elements which are, you know, there are elements of continuity. Um, but of course, um, you know, even when we talk about the Saudi state, uh, the, in the you know the, there is the first Saudi state, which is the state that was formed after this pact between Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab and and, uh, and Al Saud, and then there is a you know that movement, that particular polity was defeated, it retrenched back to to the to the Najd area, and then there is a slight revival. Uh, in the second Saudi state, which sort of ensured the continuity of of, uh, of this type of, of relationship and polity and ideology. And that, again, uh, took a backseat until the 20th century and the third Saudi state. And the third Saudi state is very different, first of all, from the first and the second, but equal, because the third Saudi state emerged in the context of a relationship with, uh, with Europe and with colonial powers. So it's you know politically it has a very different context, but equally important, 
the the weight and the and the and the power that that this uh, this particular polity and this or this particular arrangement of relationship of of, of power between a polity and an ideology uh, gained all the more weight because of the discovery of oil. That is a totally different, you know. That added, of course, to the power, the ability, the ability to project influ- influence, which was certainly nowhere to be seen before the the uh, discovery of of of, uh, of oil. So, you know, historically, the, the 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 times of, I mean, there are elements of continuity between. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, both in the thought of Ibn Abdul Wahab and in the in the pact that was struck between in the in the arrangement that was struck between the Al Saud and the and and the Al Sheikh uh, the, the, the Ibn Abdul Wahab, the religious uh, 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 ideological side of things, that pact continued, uh, and it's an element of continuity, although with taking different shapes, and also the thought of Ibn Abdul Wahab itself remains. You know, a, 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 a sort of permanent fixture, which which uh, which informs later uh, ideological for, for, for formulations. That said, there are significant differences, and the biggest difference, of course, between Wahhabism today is the context of Wahhabism. And two elements in this context is that, first of all, we are talking about Wahhabism in the context of a, and you know, even in the beginning of the 20th century, we're talking about the you know Wahhabism. Uh, in the context of a of a different political order, number one, and then later on, shortly shortly after the discovery of oil and the power that you know the economic power that that was brought to bear on on uh, the regional presence of Wahhabism. That's one thing. The other thing, and you know, which I address, that's not really something that I address in any systematic way in the book. What I said earlier, the the thing that I address in the book is the uniqueness of the thought of Ibn Abdul Wahhab within the 18th century itself, and I identify multiple strains, including some very strict conservative, if you will, and you know, uh, socially and religiously conservative. You know, I, I don't like the term, but I'm just using it for uh, for illustration purposes. Uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab was, first of all, his thought was not universal. It's not representative. What I argue in the book is that his thought was not representative of the intellectual trends in the 18th century. And this is one of the distortions of the network thesis that we that is very appealing. And again, as I told you, I was influenced by it initially when I started studying this. Uh, you know, when I when I started approaching this uh, this uh, field to study it. Uh, I, I, you know, Ibn Abdul Wahhab was one movement restricted geographically. It had, even within within uh, within Arabia, it had uh, limited appeal within not so much in the cities, but but uh, within you know in, in, in the in the desert areas and, and so on, the oases uh, in, inland there is, and so on. And certainly, when you look outside of Arabia, uh, this movement, uh, you know, pretty much all the key figures. That we're we're looking at, where you know, had very different views on 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 things, and certainly to use Wahhabism as the uh, prototype, as the representative of Islamic thought in the 18th century, has been is is wrong and uh, is ahistorical, and has actually, to my mind, has had a, a negative effect on on the study of the 18th century because it sort of uh, pigeonholed the 18th century and skewed our view of the 18th century. Uh, uh, as we see it through the lens of Wahhabism. So it's a distortive lens. It's a wrong way to approach the 18th century and understand it.
I'm very glad that you cover this because I actually, and, and you can feel free to agree or disagree with me. I, one of my like guiding principles in choosing subjects to study is I think that we do have a moral obligation and, and you referenced this earlier to not crowd the field, right? We shouldn't have 30 people working on Salafism um, when no matter how important Salafism might be at a particular point in time, it distorts our vision of what the intellectual history of what we were studying actually was. And I worry about this with regards to Wahhabism. So I'm glad that you took it on, but you also addressed the sources. You didn't simply say, oh, look, this is what, this is a sort of generic uh, supermarket store version of what uh, Wahhab said. Um, but here's what he actually said. And, and you go into it and you study it and you, you draw it into comparison and you, and you draw off these conversations. Um, so another angle in the book is actually another quite controversial topic within the Western Ac- Academy, within the study of Islamic studies in the West, which is ishtihad. Um, which in many ways, I think, used by both Muslims and non-Muslims, used by the Western Academy, it's functioned as a measure of how egalitarian and how progressive Islamic thought was at any given point in time. And there's a very famous article written by Wad Halak in the 80s, which is about whether or not um, there was this concept that at some point, ishtihad as, as sort of, um, and to define ishtihad very broadly, it's this measure within Islamic law that allows um, it's a really bad definition, but sort of freedom of thought, um, freedom of reasoning, um, the ability to reason. Um, there's this general sense that the door of ishtihad, so to speak, closed. And then what Halak pushed back against that. And I think occasionally we still refer back to that very famous article. So I wanted to ask, what does ishtihad tell us about what point we're in in Islamic thought, and in particular in your book? Um. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I, as you know, if you read the book, I, I talk about ishtihad quite a bit. I, um, I mean, first, I mean, you know, the word ishtihad, like any concept, has meaning within a particular context. And I think, uh, you know, there are multiple ways of, of, of uh, looking at, at uh, ishtihad and, and thinking about ishtihad. Let me just point a couple, of, uh, a couple of different ways of approaching, you know, and using the term and sort of engaging with it. Uh, first, there is, of course, the, the, the you know, what, what Wael did in, in his famous article, which I think is a, is a very important landmark in our field. Uh, he has argued, uh, in a way, whether he, he articulated it, this way or not, he has argued against this notion of a steady decline, which is only reversed after the, the 19th, late 19th century encounter with, uh, with European colonialism. He didn't address European colonialism as such, but he actually went into, back into the, the literature and he examined it and so on. And I, he pointed out uh, convincingly that, uh, you know, multiple ways of the, the continuity. I mean, first, he, he pointed out two important things. First of all, he pointed out... Uh, theoretical arguments about the continuation of ishtihad, the fact that the doors of ishtihad are not closed. So, you know, and and then he he pointed out also in his scholarship, he has two articles actually, uh, and, and, you know, and and, and many other places where he discusses uh, things which are of relevance. He actually showed in practice, uh, you know, the, 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 
practical ways in which not only the theoretical arguments that the doors of Ishtihad are not and should not be closed and are not closed and so on uh, and would not be closed because this is a, you know, God would not leave the, the Ummah without, without the ability to exercise Ishtihad, but also he actually showed practical ways in which Ishtihad was actually done, practiced where new ideas were introduced and, 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 and so on. So there is Wael's thing. And, you know, in a way, it's a corrective to a very important sort of strain in, if I may use the term, Orientalist scholarship on, on, uh, on, on Islam. Um, then, you know, there are other aspects. And, you know, I, that's not the aspect that I address here. There are other aspects of, uh, they're not completely unrelated, but they are, you know, they are sort of contained. There are two other aspects that I would like to highlight. First, uh, there is this notion, you know, again, uh, in, in traditional scholarship, and you know, that, uh, academic scholarship on, on, on modern Islam, there is a notion that, uh, you know, the gates of Shad were closed and then they, re- they reopened after the encounter with Europe. So here, here is a positive effect of this encounter, the encounter with, uh, with Europe and European colonialism. Uh, now, and then Ishtihad becomes uh, the litmus test. You know, are the scholars in support of Ishtihad and, uh, and uh, you know, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. One of the things that I talk about in, in the book, uh, I mean, I highlight the, the fact that there is very little substantive systematic scholarship in the second part of the 19th century onwards among the so-called modern reformers, there's very little systematic scholarship on Ishtihad. People, everyone talks about it, but there is very little systematic scholarship on it. Uh, whereas in the 18th century, people talk about Ishtihad, they invoke it, and they write books about it and about multiple ways of doing it and so on and so forth, and more importantly, about the tools for deploying it and so on. Um, so... Ishtihad becomes a litmus test and for the later period, after the encounter with Europe, becomes a, a litmus test for what constitutes reform. Now, this is problematic. Yes. Because quite often, and, you know, and, and, you know, to my mind, I don't write on it in, in the, the book, in, you know, but, but to my mind, this is, uh, the, the talk about Ishtihad in Islamic circles in, in the let, latter period is, is an apologetic sort of reaction. It's a, and in a way, it's a, it's a symptom of failure. So there is an engagement with, a, with an, an overwhelming, not just military and political uh, takeover of the Muslim world, but also an overwhelming uh, intellectual tradition. And what do people like, uh, like Muhammad Abdu do? They say, well, we exercise ishtihad. And of course, we have all of these new Western traditions. And through the exercise of ishtihad, we'll extend them in the Muslim world, to the Muslim world. And we will justify this and that institution and the introduction of different institutions and so on and so forth. So it was used apologetically and, and not in a way which is disciplined. There are very good studies in, you know, there are, you know I, I think uh, studies by Sherman Jackson, and uh, you know the, the, the uh, about the value of taqlid, about the value of disciplined engagement with the with the legal tradition, as opposed to simply using ishtihad to say whatever you know in an apologetic fashion to justify whatever you want to justify. And of course, you, you know the degeneration of this eclectic sort of and undisciplined approach to, the, to ishtihad is in uh, you know the. 
in today's phenomena, anyone issues fatwas, and everyone is a mushtahid who issues fatwas for the whole community and is willing to excommunicate uh, masses of other Muslims and, and, and to unjustify violence against them and so on and so forth. Uh, so this is the, the, the other point about, the, the second point about ishtihad, the difference between disciplined ishtihad and apologetic, random, uh, unhinged uh, exercise of ishtihad uh, and and which which can which actually I think is a is a is a, you know is something that we start seeing systematically. I have a, an article in in the Cambridge History of Islam on on modern reform, and I talk a little bit about that. I think it's a symptom of the and of course the article that you referenced, uh, Nadira, is uh, you know about the the appropriation of of, of the past. I addresses that to some extent. Uh, the third point, which is important, which is relevant, which is what I really work on in my book, is uh, is the the uh, the meaning of the engagement with the idea of ishtihad in the in the 18th century. For 18th century thinkers, as I argue, uh, the the ishtihad was approached. There there was nothing new. Although they wrote books about ishtihad, there is there isn't much new about the theory. I mean, you know, they invoke earlier literature and they put it together in slightly different ways or whatever. What is important, I think, about the, uh, the about the discussions of ishtihad in the 18th century is connecting it to notions of authority and notions of individual responsibility. Uh, in India, in the case of uh, Shah Waliullah, Shah Waliullah argues that we should expand the... I mean, he still argues that some people should can and should resort to taqlid because they lack the means to, uh, to you know, to imitation because they lack the means to exercise ishtihad. But he also wants larger segments. He thinks that every educated Muslim who can read and write, and in his context who can read and write Persian, not so much Arabic, because Arabic is a specialized thing. But for a common, you know, educated uh, uh, Muslims, the language of, uh, of education is Persian. Everyone who can read and write should should be able to consult the sources and to reflect on them and to make choices based on their inf- informed engagement with these sources. And Shahwaliullah doesn't stop there, but he actually translates what he thinks are the limited number of books that are essential for these individual Muslims, not for scholars, not for religious scholars, but for, for educated Muslims to engage meaningfully with the tradition and to make their informed choices. And this is a form of ishtihad. It's a different form of ishtihad. In the case of the Yemenis, you know, I have this very long argument, both in chapter and hadith, and also in discussions of ishtihad. In the case of Yemenis, ishtihad, there are different layers of and levels of ishtihad. There is ishtihad, which is uh, for oneself, you know, which is basically making your own choices. And they, they argue that every mukallaf, every Muslim who's legally responsible, in other words, who's not a minor or who's not too, you know, who's mentally capable, uh, every Muslim has an obligation to exercise a level of ishtihad, which is to ask about the sources and to make a choice, to make a decision on these sources. Of course, this doesn't uh, entitle that individual Muslims to issue fatwas or to tell other Muslims what to do. That is a massive responsibility. And it's a responsibility that even religious scholars should take seriously and not every religious scholar should be engaged in. So they have a range of ishtihad. There is ishtihad for oneself and ishtihad which, which, which applies to, which is sort of, which emanates from one's reflection on a tradition 
and extends to the to the larger community. So these are the three issues of ishtihad. First, the 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 issue that Wa'al uh, Halaq addresses, which is the notion that the, the gates were closed and then they were reopened later on and so on. This is a problematic notion, and I think, uh, you know, I personally am convinced of that argument. There is the other issue, which is the which is more relevant to today's, to the environment in which we live today, which is the use of ishtihad apologetically and uh, undisciplined, unhinged sort of uh, uh, exercise, which is quite problematic and in, in, in many cases in, in our contemporary world could lead to, uh, to uh, very dire uh, results. And then there is ishtihad in the 18th century, which to my mind, is is about the the deployment. What's what's unique? What's specific about the deployment of the notion of Ishtihad in the 18th century? Is a desire and a very systematic one to make the tools of Ishtihad, at least the level of Ishtihad, uh, available to larger segments of society, so that there could be more participation by these segments of society. And this is very explicit. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not trying to apply anachronistic notions, modern notions to the pre-modern period. Uh, the, the authors of the 18th century are very explicit about this, and they're very systematic. They address it in almost every, in any majority of their writings. I mean, it keeps on popping up and coming up. And not only do they address it, but they also go out of their way to tell people, you know, we're asking you to exercise ishtihad for yourself, not for other people. You know, that's a big responsibility to exercise it for others. And here are the tools that you need, and these tools are usable. This is what you need to do to be able to exercise it at a variety of different levels. Did I address your question? You completely did and more. Um, So one thing I want to ask you before we continue is, do you have more time to continue the questions or? Sure, yes, 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 of course. Okay, how much more time do we have so I don't waste any of your time? Um, How much time do you think you need? Um, Uh, I see a couple, I think I can ask four more questions, maybe 20 to 25 minutes. Yeah, go go for it. Yes, sure. Okay. Um, you're doing amazing, by the way, right now. Um, I'm really, really enjoying this. <laughs> um, Thank you. Okay, so for my next question. So one of the greater arguments of the book, I think one of the grand narratives, is that in the 18th century, there's a greater... There's an op- and, and you just referenced there's an opening up to wider participation. And that, of course, it's very... You know, that there are certain parameters that are put on it. But one of one aspect of this that I really enjoyed was the chapter on Sufism that you had, because you have these reform-minded actors who are framing religious authority and intermediaries quite negatively. It seemed that that was, to some extent, the reaction to Sufism. Um, but you're also very clear to reference that there are different frames of mind of Sufism to how as, as to how to think about authority, that many of your actors are actually people who have written Sufi works that were that studied under Sufi sheikhs, and that being, of course, Sufism, the mystical, often described as the mystical branch of Islam. Um, and I think that there's a mm-hmm. lot of wiggle room within that definition, but that's very broad, general, um, slightly problematic uh, interpretation of it. So how are they framing religious authority, to go back to it, and, and in reference to Sufism? Um, you know, of course, I... I and- you know, when I talk about ishtihad, I address this in some level, in, you know, on, on, in one area. Uh, Sufism is another, you know, very important area to, to, to uh, where we can approach this question, this specific question. Now, um, you know, as I note in the book, there are, you know, out of, I think the most substantive 
uh, analysis that we have of 18th century developments is in the area of Sufism. There is good work on Sufism, and there is actually critique of the revisionist approach of the notion of new Sufism, the mechanical ap- application of this notion of new Sufism. Uh, so there is good work and, in, 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 you know, uh, more work on Sufism than there is, for example, on, on uh, Islamic law in the 18th century or Hadith in the 18th century or what have you. Uh, so there is good, uh, th- there are good studies, Ofehi and Ratke and others uh, have, have done very very good work, I think, on, on this uh, subject. However, there are two things. Uh, I mean, f- th- these studies do not recognize a strain, as you know, a strain of critique of aspects of Sufism in the 18th century which, of course, draws on earlier things. There is nothing new about this in the 18th century. It happens in the 17th and the 16th and the 14th, and, you know, it starts with Shadili and so on. But anyway, so there is a strain of critique of, of, uh, of Sufism in the, in the 18th century, which is, uh, which is, which doesn't, you know, which is not described in the, in the works of uh, Ratke and Ofehi and, 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 and so on. So this is the first, the first point, that there are, as you know, there are people who are critical of Tasawwuf, but they themselves would have studied Tasawwuf, and they are uh, Sufis, or in the case of uh, someone like, uh, someone like Shawkani, he says, uh, you know, who am I to, you know, he's critical of s- practices that some Sufis uh, undergo, but he goes out of his way to say, I'm not going to pass judgment over individuals who practice Sufism. Who am I to do that? Uh, you know, Rahimallah, uh, something to the effect that, uh, uh, you know, one should busy oneself with their own problems and shortcomings and not focus on others. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't open the hearts of these people before they passed away. So I don't know. I'm not the one to pass judgment about their, their, their views and so on. So there is a critique of, of Sufi practices, but it doesn't, it's neither, it doesn't fit the Wahhabi model of critique. Uh, and it's not uh, well described within, within, and there is, of course, there is a continuum. There is a range of opinions in, in Tasawwuf. But, you know, let me let me just also one thing which is missed in in, in, in this uh, in in the studies that we have on Tasawwuf in the 18th century and the pre-modern period, there are shades within Sufism, which is the more important point, which are not uh, properly uh, captured in the in, in the in the otherwise good studies of and um, good critiques of the of the revisionist approaches to the to the concept of new Sufism and so on. Uh, take for example someone like Sanusi. And his teacher uh, Ibn Idris. Uh, Ibn Idris, uh, again, you know, and and this is this speaks immediately to the question that you raised, the question of authority. Ibn Idris is someone who said, you know, we should uh, we should abandon uh, adherence to the to the schools. This is a form of taqlid, and so on and so forth. But what does he posit instead? What does he offer instead? He offers uh, uh, his own mystically inspired sort of understanding of, of Sharia on account of uh, on account of his uh, Gnostic uh, knowledge and on account of his spirituality and so on and so forth in accounts of his Sufi credentials in other words so he says you shouldn't follow the schools this is a form of taqlid but you should follow me and only me not a whole school but me as an individual because I have some you know and he, he's very explicit about that and then you get a student, you know, uh, Sanusi. Uh, so here is one model of Tasawwuf, 
where there is, you know, there is a suggestion that there, you know, there is the ishtihad of the Sufi, but this ishtihad is very restrictive in terms of, you know, sort of combining and, and claiming all authority in one individual, which is Ibn Idris himself. And then you get Sanusi, and by the way, I'm not exaggerating, Ibn Idris says this much in his, in his work. And then you get his student, his pres- presumably, of course, he was a student, but he's a very different uh, type of uh, intellectual. Sanusi, uh, Sanusi's uh, views were largely influenced by Shawkani, although he never met Shawkani. He recognizes the indebtedness to, to Shawkani. Uh, Sanusi argues basically, he, he argues in terms of authority, in terms of the obligation of ishtihad, he follows Sarkani fully. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, individual ishtihad. Uh, he doesn't claim any spiritual authority which will make him the mushtahid and which will make it obligatory. I mean, you know, quite the contrary, he argues, just as Shawkani does, that every Muslim you know, individual who's mukallaf, who has a legal responsibility, has to examine the, the sources, examine the evidence, even if they have to ask for it. Examine it and make their choice on their own. So the obligation of individual ishtihad for every mukallaf is something that he aspires, he, he, he prescribes to, and, and, and so on. So here you have two Sufis, and one is presumably the disciple of the other, but the model of Sanusi certainly does not fit the traditional models. What we have in Sanusi is a combination of multiple approaches and, a, and, a, and a, an intent to re-question notions of authority and, uh, and uh, you know, including the authority of intermediaries and so on. So, yes, the way notions of, you know, the idea of neo-Sufism is problematic, but the alternative and the critique that was provided for neo-Sufism does not cover the range of possibilities. And in fact, we have a much wider range of possibility. And I think a key question here is the question of authority. And you have, as I said, you have people like Shawkani and Salani who are very critical of Tasawwuf, but not to the point of, of uh, accusing Sufis of, uh, of unbelief, of takfir. And then you have people like Sanusi, who, whose notion, who applies the notion of authority to Tasawwuf, which is very unfamiliar within the, the, the uh, um, certainly in comparison to his teacher, but also quite, quite you know, it has its elements of originality within the Sufi tradition itself. Did I answer your question? Of course you did. It was such a detailed answer, and you have such a great way of coming back and summing everything up again. I mean, and you just inspire more questions, which I unfortunately don't have the time to ask you. Um, okay, so let's jump ahead um, outside of the context of this book. Let's jump to the 19th century. And in the 19th century, I think what takes center stage, and, and you reference this in the title of the book, Islam Without Europe, but also in the book itself, you mentioned sort of one of the founding texts of the field of modern Middle Eastern or Arabic language intellectual history, which is Albert Harani. And Harani wrote, without referencing it directly, about the Nahda, which is the mm-hmm. Arabic intellectual renaissance, which a lot of people assume began early 19th century, um, continued to the early 20th century, according to Harani's sort of um, sense of time and uh, periodization. And you've written about the Nahda before. And I, I mean, this is a, to some extent a, a question that emerges from my own anxieties about the 19th century and how we write about Islam, but also how we write about Arabic thought. So how should, how do you approach the Nahda as a term, as applying it to this period of time? And is, 
And this is something, of course, that Hodani, to some extent, is is accused of. Um, is the story of the Nahda possible without the story of Islam? Uh, well, you know, Hurani himself, in one of his uh, later articles, uh, said that if he were to write this book again, he would pay more attention to Islamic scholars, scholars working within the tradition. So even Hurani, you know, had second thoughts. You, you know, uh, how do I, I don't work on Nahda yet. I work, you know, a little bit tangentially, but the, this book is not about, about yeah. Nahda. That's it totally different project and the worthy project uh, you know you 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 asked in your written notes that you sent to me whether we should access excise the the term nada from our vocabulary i don't think we can i don't think we should or can because if we do we access ourselves out of a field of study the term is relevant to the 19th century onwards the second half of the 19th century onwards it's certainly a meaningful Term in this particular historical context. It's not, of course, for the previous period. What we should do, though, is we should question it. We should interrogate this term and its application. A key, I think, a key question for us is a key question that, that many scholars are sort of uh, focused on is trying to identify the moment in which modernity starts. And that could be a bit misleading. I'm not saying that it's not a legitimate question, but one has to be very careful in, in dealing and addressing this question. Because one should, I think, resist the temptation to look at everything from the perspective of one particular vantage point, important as this vantage point may be. Now, if what you're working on is second part of the 19th century onwards, how could you avoid Mahba? You cannot. Can you problematize the term Nahda and its use and its deconstructed genealogies for Nahda and so on? Of course, by all means, we should. And we do that, I mean, partly, I hope I, you know, I, I contribute a little bit to that by casting a different history for the, pre, the, for, for the period that, that uh, came before Nahda. Because Nahda, as I argue, is not finally coming out of the long slumber of the, you know, the Muslim world coming out of its long slumber because of this movement. It's a, it's a, the historical moment, which has its own historical context, and as such, it's worthy of its own study. But it's certainly, it's not the way, you know, the, the way it's been read. You know, again, so in other words, there are two ways of understanding the term Nada. I could understand it as a, as, a, as a concept which is meaningful to actors and agents in that particular period. And it informs them and it, you know, it, it, it animates their work and so on and so forth. Um, and then you could think of the term Nahda just as you think of the term enlightenment as an ideological project in its own right, which tries to which tries to impose a narrative on on all of history, and that that's what needs to be problematized. It's very important to problematize that that notion that you know before Nahda everything was dark, and then comes Nahda, and uh, and certainly if you look at it this way then you cannot think of Nahda in isolation from Islam, or we're still in opposition to Islam, but you need to think of a continuum, and that continuum has Islamic intellectual thought at its heart before, and in, in, in many ways that there are transformations and ruptures uh, after what, you know, after the after the, the beginning of modernity, if you will, modernity in the way that it's defined in, in, in the literature. Again, did I answer your question? Yeah. You want me to elaborate? No, you absolutely did, and I think it's a good piece of advice because I'm always going back and forth about what to do 
if my historical actors aren't talking about the Nakba, I don't know quite what to do. And I feel that anxiety. Um, and it's something I think you're exactly right. We need to look at the genealogy. We need to look at the effect of the term, uh, build more conceptual histories of it, I think, for sure. So another sort of practical question that comes from my own uh, anxieties about the field, my own anxieties about the way I was trained and the way I think I need to continue to train myself and to seek out training unrelated to your book at all, but I guess sort of related in that this is a very, this is clearly a book that was written by someone who knows their stuff, who is familiar with the Islamic sciences and different branches of Islamic knowledge and the disciplines um, and knows how to read them, which is a very difficult thing indeed. And I often worry, and I've expressed this anxiety to the man I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, Hamid Qasim Zaman, one of my um, mentors, that I just don't feel like I was trained enough. And I both in graduate school, outside of graduate school, as an undergraduate, my own supplementary training. And I, I wanted to ask you, well, I know this is a bit of a, a difficult question for you because you've been working so much on your own research, but also in, in administrative positions um, for much of the last 10 years. Um, how, or beyond, because you're also a chair at Georgetown uh, in the U.S., how, how do you think we should be trained as graduate students? How do you think we should be trained? And what are the problems with how we're being trained right now? And I know that also is a question that's specific to different schools, but just generally as a field. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, when you speak of anxieties, just just as, uh, you know, in, in, in the case of reform and a sense of crisis, it's good to have anxiety, you know, as long as it's not crippling. Because it's a trigger to, you know, it's, it's a motivation to think of alternatives. And, and that's, that's great for scholarship, I think. That's very useful. Uh, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about my approach, which I, you know, I won't for a mo- moment claim is the only approach. But, you know, what I think is a very useful approach to people who are interested in intellectual history is uh, Islamic intellectual history and Islamic studies and so on, is to trace the traditions and their transformations over time and then try to contextualize. Uh, That's a difficult thing to do because it requires, as you suggest, knowledge, the ability to read this literature. And, you know, the ability to read them, if you're looking at at the manuscripts of Islamic science, they are several steps removed from us. You need to know the language of science. You need to know the specific language in which science was written back then, which is different from the way we write about science now, and then you need to also have, you know, to, to, to appreciate the, the conceptual and, and theoretical framework for the sciences back then, which is also different. So they're, they're removed from us. And to put yourself, you know, sort of to transplant yourself and to be able to read this material uh, in its own context is not an easy. It requires, you know, knowledge of multiple languages. I don't mean language in the sense of, uh, you know, English and French, but multiple you know, conceptual languages and, and, and so on, and some cases even languages in, in, in the common sense of the word. Uh, but, you know, people like you are at a, dis, at, a at an advantage, uh, uh, Nadira. You, you, you've had some, as you told me you've, uh, earlier, you had some training in the, in, the, in the traditional sciences, training which does not correspond to the type of training we get in, in, uh, in Western academia. So you have the advantage of familiarity at least with the language and with the with some of these disciplines and then you're trained also in the academic in the modern uh, western academic approach and i think you should think of this as a as a gift uh, you know the ability to read 
through multiple registers and 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 take on the challenge of of uh, of you know refining conceptually refining the way we understand these disciplines and highlighting things which you think are not highlighted enough in 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 uh, in, in in the way we're we're trained um, how i personally train students i train them in what i appreciate most and what i do most which is to look at traditions and look at how they change over time and try to me- read meaning into that into these transformations by thinking of the larger context to the extent of course this is an endless job you know and I, and it's not possible to do it in any comprehensive way but it's possible to do it in systematic ways and in particular disciplines and so on and add to the knowledge in our field and you know even Add nuances and 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 make it a little more sophisticated and uh, you know make, you know uh, s- sort of complicate the way we 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 study uh, the various disciplines in, in the Islamic intellectual tradition. It's funny. A similar advice when I express that anxiety, and I completely agree. I think anxiety. I think worry. I think it keeps you on your toes. And I I'm always telling myself that I'm always reminding my peers of that that we we should always be worried that our work has holes in it. And not let it be crippling, of course, but the advice that was given to me when I expressed this anxiety to Muhammad Qasim Zaman was, you will reach for materials as you go through them and you will learn as you go along. So I, there's an echo of that in that. So I appreciate that advice. I'm going to take it to heart and recall, remember it. Um, so I want to congratulate you on the book. It is an amazing text. I think I'm just going to be, I, I'm going to be carrying around with me for quite a bit of time. It's going to become my teddy bear, so to speak. Um, my safety blanket. Um, and I'm looking forward to meeting you in person and having another conversation. So again, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much um, for, for everything, for this opportunity, for your kind words. And uh, and I look forward to meeting you as well. Good luck with your work. And, you know, you're, uh, you're the future. I look forward to the work that you will, you will be producing. Oh, we'll see. In, in, we'll in, see. Inshallah. Months. Okay. So we always close the interview with a question about what you're doing right now. What are your current projects? Um, you know, there are several projects that I have in mind. I'm not exactly, you know, deeply immersed in any. I just finished this book and right now I'm immersed in, in, in uh administration and also in, you know, in program building and so on. Uh, you know, I, I, hope to do several things and I've started in, 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 in varying degrees to work on some of these projects. I would like to write uh, a monograph on Osman ibn Fudi um, uh, where I would do a, more of a you know, social political history as well as intellectual history and try to, to flesh that out a little more uh, than, I, than I do in, in, in my book. So this is one uh, project that I hope uh, foreseeable future. Uh, I also want to work on on uh, maslaha and maqasid uh, sharia the whole concept of uh, again sort of you know trace the the development of the con- con- uh, concepts of, of maslaha masalah sharia and their deployment. Uh, again, I don't know if and when I'll come to this, uh, um, but I think that's a project that needs to be addressed. I have some view on on, on views on it, and I've been I've done some work on it. Uh, as well uh, uh, I would like to work on uh, uh, for a variety of reasons on uh, uh, personal law 
Islamic personal law in any modern context. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what the what if I will ever get to it and what the you know what the uh, you know how I how I would frame it. But it's certainly a subject which I which is uh, worthy of study. I mean, I could uh, you know. Students, if I have a chance, I would advise students to work on these projects, and then uh, that that would do it. But I think these are areas worthy of of, uh, of uh, pursuing. And there are other projects also for the future. I don't know how long I'd live, uh, but you know, there is no shortage of ideas. No, best of luck to all. And again, because I'm so effusive about the book, congratulations, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the reception, which will hopefully, and I'm sure, almost be positive. Thank you so much. <laughs>